Good afternoon, everyone. There are three or four main passages that we're going to look at this afternoon, and I'll invite you to turn them up. Other than that, I'll refer to quite a few other passages, but they're fairly short, maybe a verse each or so, so I'll just read those. But if you want a list of them or a copy of them at the end, please do let me know. So Bible teaching on heaven and hell. There are a large number of people around us in the world who believe that death ends all So they may as well eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. But many others have a hope or an expectation of something else, some kind of life beyond death. And for many of them, that notion is that if they've lived a good life, and good is normally in self-examination against those around them, their neighbours and the like, uh, then some part of them lives on after death. And if they haven't lived a good life, then some part of them lives on in a place of torment or punishment. And this idea of heaven as a place of reward and hell as a place of eternal torment for those who disobey the commands of God has not only been taught for centuries but exploited by some churches in order to keep their flocks in line, that you will do what we tell you, or uh, he who keeps the gates to the keys of hell will make sure where you go when you die. And this kind of pressure has been used on people. On the other hand, the Bible tells us something quite different about what happens when we die. Now, Acts chapter 2, which we read, if you're still there, if you put a mark or something, and we're going to come there at the end to finish off. But to start with, you come to me at the very beginning of the Bible to Genesis and chapter 2. So the very first book in the Bible, Genesis and chapter 2. In chapter 1 of Genesis, we have God's account of creation. And then in chapter 2, it goes back to look at some of that in more detail. And in verse 7, we have the creation of the first man, Adam. And it says there in Genesis 2, in verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, or a living being. And that word soul we'll come to look at in a minute. So God took the dust of the ground, breathed his breath in to create this living man, Adam. And he gives man various instructions, one of which is things he can and can't do in the Garden of Eden. There's a particular tree he's not to eat of. And Adam and Eve, who is made uh, later on in chapter 2, it tells us from one of his ribs, disobey God and as part of the punishment if you go into chapter 3 and verse 17 it says unto Adam God said because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So, in a very simple sense, that is life, and that is death. Man's life was formed by the dust of the ground and the breath of God. Because of your disobedience, God tells Adam, at some point, not immediately, it's not like the fairy tale where whichever person it was I always get mixed up bites into the juicy red apple and immediately falls down dead but at some point you're now going to die you're going to live a mortal life and you will die 
because I'm going to withdraw my breath from you. That breath which gives a life I will withdraw. And you came from the dust of the ground and you'll return to the dust of the ground. And, and that, in the simple form, is what it is. And to suggest that something more than that, which we'll come to look at, just another verse to bear in mind if you go back to chapter 2. And verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And we then come to look at the creation of Eve. But before that, verse 19, it's an interesting verse to remember. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam and he named them. So this is a lion and this is a tiger and he gave them their names. But it's the part in exactly the same words in the original. The Lord God formed the animals and the birds from the dust of the ground, just as he formed man from the dust of the ground. So if we're going to then say that this man and life and being has some afterlife, is it the same of all the beasts and the fowls which God created in verse 19 in exactly the same way as he created man? So how can we on the one hand have this very straightforward from the scriptures idea of life and death, the removal of the breath of God and the return to the dust of the ground, and this idea or notion of heaven and hell, on the other hand, depending whether we deserve a life of good or bad, depending on how we've lived our lives now. And I say this prevailing idea in many of the churches is that when a person dies, although the body decays, the immortal soul uh, of that person continues to live on either in the happiness of heaven or the fire and torment of hell. And it's that word soul we had there in verse 7 of chapter 2. Man became a living soul. And they say this soul in some part lives on. Well, the only way that can happen is if the soul, and the term they use is an immortal soul. Well that phrase immortal soul never appears in the Bible. Not once you can't turn to a passage and say there is a mortal soul. Those words together don't appear there. In fact, the Bible says something quite different, that we have no conscious existence after death, despite what happens to our body. A couple of examples, Psalm 146. His breath goeth forth, he returned to his earth, in that very day his thoughts perish. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. That's in Ecclesiastes 9. And the verse we read from Acts 2, for David is not ascended into the heavens. And if anyone deserved to go to heaven, David, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, perhaps would have been one of them. It says quite clearly he isn't in heaven. And we'll come to look at that in our closing remarks. So why is there so much confusion then about what appears to be quite a simple answer to the question? There are two reasons. The first, as I've said already, is the vested interest historically of many of the churches in perpetuating this idea. And the second is a misunderstanding of some of the words used. For example, this idea of uh, the inherent immortality of the sin, of the soul, sorry. Uh, again, I'll just read the verse that in Ezekiel chapter 18, read there very clearly in Ezekiel 18. As I live, saith the Lord God, you shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. For behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Quite clear and straightforward. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. So that's not an idea of an immortal soul. 
your act death lives on someplace for either good or bad. If a soul sins, it will die. And the soul isn't distinct from the body. It's just talking about the being, the person, the entity that lives. And when God withdraws that breath, as we saw in Genesis 2 and 3, from the soul, it returns to the dust of the ground. And similarly with the word hell, uh, misunderstanding arrives. Hell, uh, in the Old Testament, the word sheol is translated hell 31 times, grave 31 times, and pit three times. And it, the original word really just means a covered place, uh, which describes the grave or a pit. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it describe a place of fiery punishment and torment, and they didn't understand it to be that. They understood it just to be the grave. Uh, that as it explained in Genesis, uh, when someone died, uh, their body was buried, it decayed and returned to the dust of the ground again. When the Old Testament was translated to Greek, uh, the Hebrew word Sheol was translated to the Greek word Hades. And this is the Greek word used for the grave, a literal place where dead people are put, not a mysterious place of the torment. And in the New Testament we have Hades, this word Hades used 11 times, the Greek Sheol being grave, and Gehenna 13 times. Now Gehenna was a place just outside Jerusalem where the rubbish was burnt. So it was an eternal fire burning away and all the rubbish they didn't have the kind of modern systems that we have that a bin lorry came and collected your rubbish and took it all away. It was all piled on this dump which constantly burnt away. And those who died, having no money, so no place for burial, were just thrown on there with all the rubbish. And this just burnt away. And it was something that was well known to them, Gehenna, just this eternal rubbish dump. There was always a fire there, burning away the rubbish of the city. And that's what it's referring to, this place of uh, burning or the grave. Nothing more mysterious to it than that. And when you then come to the word heaven, it's even easier than that. There's hundreds of occasions, you'll be glad to know we're not going to look them all up, but heaven really means heaved up things. And it's translated things such as heaven, rolling cloud, clouds, air, sky. So it's used in all kinds of different ways, the original word. One commentary that I've got at home, which is a really old one, described it this, the earth was given to man and the heavens, the heaved up things, are the domain of God. And he then says, they are that which is above the tops of the trees and the tops of the mountains. So the sky, the air, that which is above the earth. Now you could say that with the advent of modern flight, does that change it? That man's domain is no longer limited to the earth so he can fly in the skies? Well, it was very interesting that the very first Russian cosmonauts who went into space, who had uh, an inherent interest in proving there was no God because they didn't believe in God, when they returned to earth, the first thing they said was, we have been to the heavens and there is no God. That, that was their summation of it. Because they'd managed to get beyond where man had been before. They'd got past the stratosphere and they had seen that there is no God. Quite what they expected to see, I'm not sure, a big door with God lives here and this is where he enter. And I don't know what they were expecting, but that was their summation of it. So now rockets have gone to the moon and they've gone beyond the moon. And they've gone to Mars and they've gone beyond that and no one has found God. Does that mean God doesn't exist? Does that mean that the limitations of the heavens are moved out and out as mankind develops? I don't think so, not least in thinking like that. We're limiting God to our understanding of 
the universe and the way in which God operates and the way in which we see things outside of which God operates. So manned spaceflight or even flying planes doesn't change this idea that the earth God gave to man, the heaved up things, the things above the earth, the air, the sky, is God's, the heavens where he dwells. And just a couple of verses. I'm going to read a, a selection of verses just to show this point. Um, I'll say what they are, but as I say, they're all a verse each, so don't look them up. If you like, I can give you a note of them at the end. So Psalm 115, verse 16 says, The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. So separating the earth, the physical crust of the earth, against the heavens, and the heavens being that which is heaved up or raised above the earth. And it's as simple as that. It's the air above the earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. You'll see why I'm not making you look them up in a minute, because they jump around an awful lot just to get this sequence. Um, God, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. So talking about God in the heavens and his dwelling place, dwelling in light unapproachable, which no man hath seen nor can see. So quite what the Russians were hoping to see once they got into space, I'm not sure, but they're misunderstanding there, the dwelling place of God. In Matthew 5 and verse 12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So people go to that verse and say, there you go, your reward's in heaven. Well, I agree with that. But what it doesn't say is that you go to heaven to get that reward. So if you've lived a good life, it's still not saying you go to heaven. It's just saying your reward is in heaven. So you then go to 1 Peter 1 and verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So now this reward is in heaven, yes, but it's reserved in heaven. And then finally back to Matthew 16 and verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. So quite clearly there, that although this reward for those who have been good, who sought out God and followed after him, is in heaven, it's reserved in heaven, and that reward is given not when we die, but very clearly again, verse 27, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So that reward is bestowed upon those who seek after God when Jesus comes. Where is he coming? To the earth. And at that point, this reward, reserved in heaven, is given to them. Not when people die and ascend into heaven to collect this reward. And finally in this run, 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Henceforth... There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. 
And the day he's talking about is the day of the return of the Lord Jesus to the earth when he will raise the dead. There will be a judgment and he will bestow this reward upon those who have been faithful. Shall give me at that day and not to me only but unto all them also that love his appearing. So that's when that reward is bestowed upon those who love his appearing when he comes again to the earth to give it to them. If in your Bibles you can turn with me now to Mark chapter 9. So in the New Testament we've got Matthew and then Mark chapter 9. There are two passages in the Bible which seem to say something different than I have just told you. So to be totally upfront and honest and fair, we're going to now look at both of those passages. And then uh, Daniel's going to explain to you what they mean. (laughs) So the first of them is Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and we'll come in at verse 38. So the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 and verse 38. John answered him, that is Jesus, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in thy name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, very I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. For it is better for thee to enter into life maimed, than having two hands to go into hell, into fire, that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. So there you go. Very clearly, three times, that tells you that there is a place uh, where there is fire that never shall be quenched. uh, And this, people would say, is talking about hell. So this this is this place of torment that we're talking about when you die. That if you haven't been good or you've disobeyed the minister, then this is the place uh, where you'll be condemned to in death. And this is Jesus not saying these words. So there can't be any dubiety about it. He's three times told you that this place exists. So it's argued that this passage shows that the souls of the wicked will spend eternity suffering the torment of hellfire. Well, in order to accept that, I think you'd agree we have to read the passage literally. So to say, well, yes, there is a literal place called hell where fire shall never be quenched means we have to read this passage literally. So if you have to read those verses literally, you have to read the whole passage literally. So what you're then saying is that literally, uh, if our hand or our foot or our eye causes us to sin, we have to chop it off. Oh, well, I don't really mean we should be that literal. All right, so we're going to pick the bits that are literal and we'll pick the bits that aren't literal. Fine. Well, how about if we're to read this passage literally, 
then did you all know, because it says here literally, that in hell there are eternal worms that never die. They must have been really bad in a previous life because now they're living eternity uh, in hell, uh, consuming those things which go there because they don't... Well, I didn't really mean to read it that literally. So really what you want to do is read one bit literally, but not the rest of it literally. Hmm. If I, again, just keep your finger in there, I'm just going to read a verse from Isaiah, so an Old Testament book, and it says in Isaiah chapter 66, uh, at the very end of the prophecy, closes with this verse. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So that's very similar words, and most likely the place where the Lord Jesus is quoting from in Mark chapter 9. But what he is referring to here is, I was, at school I was never very good at English and arts. I was maths and sciences. So I'll re- read out what the phrase is, and if you're good at English you'll know what this is. An absolute expression limited in application. If that makes sense, an absolute expression limited in application. So what it's saying is, what Jesus is referring to here is something which has an end point. It has a purpose, and when that purpose is fulfilled, then it comes to an end. And if I just read you one example of it, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, and there are many, many hundreds of them, this is one example of an absolute expression limited in application. Jeremiah 7, it says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and upon beast, upon the trees of the field, and upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. And that was the judgment against a city for their disobedience to God. And when it says, shall not be quenched, we can't go there now and see the fires burning because the city has been destroyed. The shall not be quenched is... An absolute expression limited in application. It's talking about a judgment which is taking place until that judgment is completed and finished. And then the fire doesn't need to burn anymore because the job has been done. And what Jesus here, picking up on Isaiah, is referring to is what we've already talked about in Gehenna and what they knew well. This fire which continually burnt outside the city in which bodies were put. uh, The fire burnt them. The worms ate what was left. Until that body was totally consumed and gone. Didn't exist anymore. The fires carried on but not in relation to that body. That had been limited by its application. That had been achieved. That purpose uh, of uh, what the Lord Jesus was speaking about. So he's not literally talking about going out and cutting off your limbs if they cause you to sin. Or worms which last forever. He's using here terminology which they knew of complete and utter destruction until that destruction was completed. They saw it before their eyes every day of their lives. They smelt it every day of their lives. And here he is referring to exactly what they knew about it. The same phrase is used of Sodom and Gomorrah, who had prophecies against them. They would be utterly destroyed. But that destruction, uh, everlasting destruction, doesn't carry on today because Sodom and Gomorrah don't exist anymore. The purpose has been accomplished. And this idea of fire has been used throughout scripture to represent utter destruction. Uh, Nowhere is it used as 
a thing of preservation, preserving things in torment. Sodom and Gomorrah was completely destroyed by fire. Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, were devoured by fire and died. A fire from God consumed and destroyed the 20 men who illegally uh, offered incense in the rebellion of Korah. Fire called upon by Elijah and judging the false prophets. It's always for complete and utter destruction, not a place of punishment and torment. And so Jesus here is picking up on this metaphor that they were well used to in their physical lives and seeing it, but in the wording as well of talking about something which was for complete and utter destruction. And he's making the point that if you uh, aren't for me, you're against me. And if you're against me, then you will be destroyed, just as you see it completely and utterly every day of your lives before your eyes. Come on again in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke. So Matthew, Mark, the next book is Luke in chapter 16. And here we have the other passage which appears to teach that man experiences suffering immediately after death in some ongoing manner. So again it's the words of Jesus in Luke 16 and we're going to go in at verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom, and cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, rememberest thou that thou in thy lifetime receivest the good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between you, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So words of Jesus there, which would seem to indicate there is this, rich man and this beggar and they both die and one goes to a place in Abraham's bosom which is nice and one goes to a place of a torment which is not nice. Again, uh, if we're going to read this passage uh, and take that view of it, we have to read the whole passage literally. So it implies that you can see heaven from hell and you can see hell from heaven and many famous artworks have been made as a result of that with the stretching out of arms and a gulf between them so they can't quite make contact but one beholding and looking upon the other. But really the context of this passage 
shows if it is really to be understood literally, as that would indicate, or metaphorically. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus says, the Pharisees, and if you know at the beginning of the chapter, that's who this passage uh, was uh, directed to. In verse 14 it says, the Pharisees also who were covetous heard these things and Jesus said unto them. So he's speaking here to the Pharisees. So Josephus says, the Pharisees believed that at death they were taken to a place called Abraham's bosom, while the poor of the population suffered in Hades, a place of eternal torment. So here what Jesus is doing is talking to the Pharisees. He's using their understanding of what happened when they died. Well, you, he says, think you're going to Abraham's bosom and you think that this poor man, just because he happens to be a beggar, never mind anything he's done or not done in life, is going to a place of eternal torment. And so Jesus uses this idea and switches it around. He switches the positions. He puts the beggar in Abraham's bosom and the Pharisee in the place of torment to make the point that he wants to make. And the point is at the end of the chapter, verse 29. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And in this parable, Jesus is very subtly saying to them, look, you, this is a position you believe. I'm going to turn it on its head because not too far in the future, things are going to be turned on their head because you're going to take me and you're going to kill me. And you haven't believed the prophets. You haven't believed Moses because they didn't tell you any of this stuff. If one was to come from the dead and he's talking about himself, he's going to die very shortly and been raised from the dead. You still won't believe And that's the point he's trying to get through to them. And very shortly, he is killed, he is raised from the dead, and they didn't believe, exactly fulfilling this parable that he told them. So he's trying to turn things around metaphorically, using their erroneous understanding to show them uh, that even if one rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe, and they didn't. The rich man, representing the Pharisees, to whom Jesus was speaking, wants Abraham to send the beggar to warn his brothers But even if someone rose from the dead, or even Jesus saying, when I rise from the dead, that still won't make any difference to you, the Pharisees. The Pharisees refused to accept Jesus as the Son of God, both whilst he was among them and after he had been raised from the dead and tried to cover the whole thing up. Therefore, as far as the Bible's concerned, there is no evidence to support the idea that unfaithful and wicked people consciously exist after death in even either heaven or hell or some face will have it as a stopping off place before you get to one or the other. These ideas just aren't in the Bible at all. The Bible clearly states, the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. The breath goeth forth, he returneth to the earth, in that very day his thoughts perish. And if you come with me, if you still have a marker in it, finally to Acts chapter 2, the chapter where we started out. Very, very clear teaching in Genesis about life and death, how man was made, how man returns to the dust of the ground. And very clear teaching here in Acts chapter 2 and a couple of situations we'll look at. And all the stuff that we've looked at in between what you have to decide is this. Is this stuff that you're going to read literally, word for word, in which case you have to take every word of it literally, 
Or is there something else going on, a subtext, something metaphorical, something talking about an understanding of words they had at the time that perhaps have been lost today? Because Acts chapter 2 tells us to me very clearly that until Jesus' return and the bestowing upon this of this reward, which he will bring with him from heaven, death is death. And Acts chapter 2 is very clear on that. We'll just pick up a few verses. If you come in at verse 22 where we started. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. Jesus, we're told, went into the grave, into the pit, into the same word as hell. Is that right? That the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who through his life had perfect obedience to God and his ways went to hell? Not in the general church's understanding of hell, but in the understanding of the grave, it would make sense. But the grave, hell, could not hold him because he had done no wrong and the third day God raised him up again. And similarly it says in verse 25, David, so this is King David, the King of Israel of the Old Testament, speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad, moreover shall my flesh shall rest in hope, because I will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So that is David there looking forward, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, whose soul wouldn't be left in hell. Well, if hell is anything other than the grave, how can that possibly make sense? And then it picks up again if you come further down. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. If that still isn't convincing for you enough, well, let's speak of David, one of the forefathers that you hold up along with Abraham and Moses as being at the forefront of your faith. He is dead and buried and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. If you want, I'm sure he's saying to him, you know where it is. You can go along the road and you can look at it and the grave is there and underneath that is where he is buried. Uh, and if you're in any doubt about that, um, verse 30, Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. He was speaking of Jesus when he talked about this being in hell, not of anyone else. So how can that possibly be true? Verse 31, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So there's no doubt about it, that's what the words are saying. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Verse 33, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth his, which you now see and hear. Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord saith unto my Lord, sit thou in my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. David, whose sepulchre you can go and see, isn't in heaven. And if anyone was going to be in heaven, why wouldn't he be in heaven? He's dead and he's buried and he's lying there in his sepulchre. Only Jesus, whom hell the grave couldn't contain because he had done no wrong, was raised by God, is now in heaven at the right hand of God, 
and as we carry on reading through Acts, will return to bestow that reward reserved in heaven upon those who are faithful at his coming. God hath, verse 36, made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So very clear teaching there that only the Lord Jesus, after his death and resurrection, ascended into heaven. David, that patriarch of old, is not in heaven but rather awaits that time when Jesus will return from heaven to receive uh, the resurrection and the judgment, that wonderful reward. And just one final passage, just a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 4. Quite often of the faithful, you might have noticed in your reading or You'll note if you if you look out for it, you'll see it talks about people who are asleep when they're dead. They fell asleep. So so and so fell asleep and was buried in the tomb of his fathers. And the reason for that is there is no ongoing memory uh, existence. They're in the grave, but they're not totally dead. They're waiting the time when Jesus will return, when they will be awoken from that sleep, and judgment will take place. So rather being dead and buried without hope, they are dead, they're in the grave, but the Bible uses this really nice term of them being asleep. Uh, they have this wonderful hope, awaiting that time when Jesus will return from heaven and God's kingdom will be established, the resurrection and the judgment will take place. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll go in, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, even as we are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And that is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He descended first into the lower parts of the earth, into the grave, and was raised again by God to ascend into heaven, to sit at his right hand. And these things we're encouraged to read and to learn more of, and to be assured of. Verse 14. Henceforth we be no more children. Tossed to and fro. Carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the slight of men. Their cunning craftiness. Whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love. That we may grow up into him in all things. Which is the head even of Christ. And verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. That you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles. In the vanity of their minds, having their understanding darkened. But rather, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. And that is that wonderful hope that we have, that the Lord Jesus did die and go in the grave, but he was raised by God to spend time, 40 days encouraging his disciples, but then to ascend into heavens with that wonderful promise that he will return to the earth and 
which point he will bring that reward from heaven with him.